We're in Exodus chapter 20, last uh, lesson. We did the Ten Commandments part one. This is Ten Commandments part two, and people have uh, wondered, are there going to be ten parts of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no, there's only two parts. No, it's just, to just two parts. That's the plan. So we'll see, see how we do with that. So uh, just a little recap here. The Lord meets the Israelites at Mount Sinai, gives the Ten Commandments. Uh, they're spoken first, the hearing of all the people, and then they're later going to be engraved on tablets of stone, and we'll read more about that in subsequent uh, lessons. Ten Commandments are found two places in Scripture, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, where they're repeated. Moses retells at the end of his life. And uh, the previous uh, lesson, last Sunday, we looked, we started looking at the Ten Commandments. We'll continue that discussion this morning. And we looked at, last time we looked at how the, the commandments are, are numbered, uh, how they hang on the two greatest commandments, to love God and, and love, love our neighbor as ourselves. And we, we focus particularly on the importance of uh, what's generally considered the second commandment, the pro- prohibition on making images of God or idols. And, uh, and then we also talked about how this was referred to as the day of the assembly, a few places in scripture, and the assembly being, in, in the Greek, the Septuagint, the same word that's later used by Jesus in front of the church. So that's a little, little recap of where we are. Uh, since it's been a week, I want to reread the Ten Commandments, and uh, then we'll pick it up from there. Now, uh, some of you may be thinking, well, he only hit the first two commandments, so he's probably going to go through the three through ten. I'm not really going to do it that way, okay? Honestly, I think most of the commandments are so clear and self-explanatory that there's nothing for me to add to them. There, there's, there's one in particular I want to explore that people have uh, argued about, been confused about, and I want to ask a deeper question of... Okay, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Do we still have to follow them or not? How, how, do, how For Christians, what's the significance of the Ten Commandments? I want to focus on that uh, today. So uh, let's, let's start by rereading Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. I always feel good by starting off reading from the Bible, because I think if, uh, if, if nothing else, somebody's going to gain something from that. So can't go wrong. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bibles based on the Septuagint. Now the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or a likeness of anything in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, recompensing the sins of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor your stranger who sojourns with you. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them, 
and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you and that your days may be long upon the good land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his house, neither shall you covet his field, nor his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, any of his cattle, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. Um, I just I noticed something in here. I wasn't planning to go over it in the notes, but I just want to mention here, one of the things that may throw people for a loop is where he says, um, uh, recompensing the sins of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And, and uh, I, I think of Ezekiel 18, you know, it says, Ezekiel 18 starts off where the Lord says, this proverb that I hear you saying, the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. He said, I never want to hear that one again. He says, you retire that one. He says, don't talk talk to me about that. He says, the one who sins is the one who will die. He says, if a father... Has an has a, a good is a righteous man. He has an unrighteous son. The son's going to get punished. The father's not going to get punished for the sins of the son. And if the if the unrighteous man has he has a son, then and his and his son. This is the grandson in the story. Looks at his father's life and says, "Boy, I'm not going to live like that." And he's righteous like his grandfather. That one will live. And the Lord says, "I don't take the, the pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. I don't want anyone." So. The idea that we're going to be guilty for our parents' sins is not what the Lord is talking about here. He says that the that the 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 uh, the people will be I'll be recompensing the sins of the fathers on the children, third and fourth generation. Whatever it means, we're not guilty for the sins of our of our parents. Now we may suffer the consequences of our parents' sins if our parents are abusive, if our parents are alcoholics, if our parents spent everything they had and ended up in debt. That may impact us in some way, but we will live or die based on how we live. This is the other the other side of the story. This is, on the one hand, he says, recompensing the children. But on the other hand, he says, but showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commands. If we love him and keep our, his commands, regardless of what our parents and grandparents did, then he will love us and take care of us. We don't have to worry about that. So this is, I just, I wanted to touch on that because Sometimes that, that strikes people as a little odd. But I just encourage you to go back and read Ezekiel 18, and, and God's not kind of contradicts himself here. So um, I just want to, to, to pick up here. Um, so here's the big question. I'm going to start with the big question. What do we as Christians do with the Ten Commandments? Should we still follow all Ten Commandments? A lot of a lot of what I would call conservative Christians, meaning people who are more serious about reading the Bible and following the Bible in general, a lot of them would instinctively say, yes, we do. We're supposed to follow the Ten Commandments. They're important. However, what about the Fourth Commandment? The Fourth Commandment, it says, keep the Sabbath, which is, and we'll talk more about this later, but fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath. Sabbath is Saturday. It's the last day of the week, as God explains very clearly here, on the seventh day. Sunday is the first day of the week, the day Jesus was raised. The Sabbath was the last day of the week. It was Saturday. 
And uh, so if you're supposed to keep ten of the, com- the Ten Commandments, that's one of them. So what do we do with that? So, well, maybe we're supposed to keep nine of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> so what, 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 do you, what do you think about that? Uh, or some people say, well, just keep, keep, the, keep nine of the Ten. That's pretty good. Uh, other people uh, will, if they want to keep all Ten Commandments, you're, you're stuck generally with one of two positions. And there's problems with both of them. One is... You need to follow what the Orthodox Jews are doing and the Seventh Day Adventists are doing, and you have to you you worship you would worship and and keep the Lord's Day, which was not what the early church did at all. Uh, and and then other people will somehow some way turn Sunday into the Sabbath, okay? And they're two different days, okay? The Sabbath was the seventh day. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the first day. There are two different days. And so someday, somehow, mentally, people switch the Sabbath onto Sunday. They say Sunday became the Sabbath. We'll talk more about that later. That's not how the early Christians understood at the beginning at all. So uh, so, there's a, that, so this is the question. What do you do with this? This kind of this throws a monkey wrench into the idea of, of do we need to follow the Ten Commandments? What do we do with this? Uh, or... Some people's attitude is the Ten Commandments are like like an artifact, like like it'd be like the uh, you know these days it'd be like the Bill of Rights in, in the United States, the, the Bill of Rights, or the, maybe the Articles of Confederation, or something like that, where you, you you go into a museum and it's in a glass case and it's in lights and it's protected, you know, there's an electric fence around or something, so. You just you just you, you put it in the museum and you just kind of observe it and think about how wow that was really amazing that that really happened back then and isn't that isn't that wonderful uh, historical artifact so so what do we do would we follow it or just consider it a historical artifact that's uh, that, that's from a bygone era uh, now I want to work through this but I want to start off with. Um, Something that I think is absolutely dead wrong and and is but but has had tremendous impact. This is how Luther viewed the law of Moses and law in general, and how Luther viewed the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther, reason being because here we are in the United States. Luther, the impacts of, that Luther had on our culture and on the Christian world 500 years ago are staggering. I'm reading the words of Luther, written 500 years ago in his introduction to the German Bible. And it blows me away how uh, how that those ideas that he launched have dominated in, in so many Christian circles. I want to now. <clears throat> last night, uh, Alice and I were listening to a uh, short, like a little ten minute podcast. Now, I, Allison learns a lot of things, and sometimes I'll ask her, you know, what are you learning? Is there anything really worthwhile? And uh, this was a podcast, so she said, hey, you've got, you got, got 10 minutes after dinner, we can listen to this. And uh, the really, the puzzling thing to me was, this was a, this was, he was giving a lesson on being a good listener. So I couldn't figure out why in the world Allison wanted to share this with me. Why, why are there all the eye rolls in the, in the audience here right now? So, <laughs> so. I couldn't figure out why does she want me to listen to this. I'm I'm a really good listener. I think I am. So, uh, <laughs> so maybe during the break you can you can enlighten me on why she might want want me to listen to this. But uh, say, 
So this speaker was talking about the way most people tend to communicate and argue with each other. And he says, generally what people will do if they don't agree with each other, they'll take the worst characterization of what you just said and, and, and they'll, they'll make it even worse than that, make a really weak case, and then they'll demolish the, the weak argument that you made. And uh, people feel insulted by that. They don't feel like they've been listened to. And it's just people just end up uh, bashing each other on, on the most mundane possible things. And so the speaker was saying what you really need to do to break that terrible dynamic in, in many relationships is stop and listen to what the speaker is saying. And usually they'll say a lot of, a lot of things. Just try to boil it down to what's the main point and what's the logical uh, 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 thread. And, said, and then you speak back the words to the speaker and say, now, is this what you're trying to say? And when the person says, yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say, then you've at least gotten to first base. And then you can ra- respectfully raise questions like, well, this thing you said over here seems to be in contradiction with this other thing you said over here. Let's explore that a little further. And, and, then, and then you can get into a discussion, having a productive discussion instead of what usually happens. <laughs> and so I thought, well, that's, that's probably a good thing for me to think about. That's, that's a good idea. And, uh, and then after you restate the position of your opponent in a way that they recognize, then you can start to, to uh, examine it, ask questions, and, and then offer your own position. But just being able to state correctly what the person is saying doesn't mean you're agreeing with them. It means you're understanding them. Mm-hmm. So that's a good, good place. And I thought that's, there's a lot of, a lot of truth to this. So even though Martin Luther's been dead for a few hundred years, I like to try that out today with Martin Luther. Maybe someday I'll try it at home, too. Who knows? <laughs> so I'll try it with Luther. Except that he can't say, yes, Chuck, you've got it right. So, so I'm reading Luther's introduction to his German translation of, of the, the Old Testament, where he really lays out his whole philosophy and his whole attitude, tells everybody how to think before they read the Bible. Uh, <clears throat> And, and I'm going to give you some quotes from here. Let, let's just try to understand in Luther's own words, not my characterization of him, and try to understand from his own words what he believed about the Law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. And then, and then maybe understanding that, we can appreciate how the Protestant world generally views these things, and then we'll take a look at, at that from there. So let's, let's, let's start from that point of view. So Luther, this is from his his preface to the Old Testament. He said, Just as the peculiar and chief teaching of the New Testament is the proclamation of grace and peace in Christ through the forgiveness of sin, so the peculiar and chief teaching of the Old Testament is the teaching of laws, the showing of sin, the furtherance of good. No, this is what you have to expect in the Old Testament. So he's telling the readers... Old Testament laws, New Testament grace and forgiveness. So that's what he's, he's telling them right up front so they'll know what to look for when they're reading. Okay? So in he says, This law, the Levitical law given by, laws given by Moses, can be done away with, but the Ten Commandments cannot be done away. So this is what Luther said. For sin against the Ten Commandments would be sin, even though there were no commandments, 
for they were not known, just as the unbelief of the heathen is sin, even though they don't know or think that it's sin. So he says, Ten Commandments are so foundational that even if it wasn't written down, those things would be sin, basically. Those things are just self-evident. They're sin. This is different from the ritualistic laws or the dietary laws or things like that. These are just always sin, basically. That's Luther's attitude. So Ten Commandments can't be done away with. So let's continue. Then when Christ comes, the law ceases, especially the Levitical law, which has been said makes sins of things that are not in their nature sinful. The Ten Commandments do not cease in the sense that they no longer to be kept or fulfilled. But in Moses, pardon them ceases and no longer strengthens sin by the Ten Commandments and sins no longer the sting of death. For through Christ, sin is forgiven. God is reconciled. Man's heart has begun to be inclined to the law. Moses can no longer rebuke it and make it sinful because it's not kept the commandments and is guilty of death as he did before grace came and before Christ was there. So this is, this is Luther's view about the old law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Now, here, he, here Luther uh, switches, and I, I'm, I'm stunned by the, the, the scripture that he chooses to make his point. We'll talk about this more later. So Luther says, So Moses himself has told us that his work and teaching should last until Christ, and then cease. When he says in Deuteronomy 18, A prophet shall the Lord thy God raise up unto thee from among thy brethren, like unto me, him you shall hear. This is the noblest saying in all of Moses. Indeed, it's the very pith of him. And the apostles appealed to it and made great use of it to strengthen the gospel and abolish the law. All the prophets, too, drew heavily upon it. For since God here promises another Moses, whom they are to hear, it follows of necessity that he would teach something different from Moses. Moses gives up his power to him and yields to him so that he may be heard. Okay, now listen to what Martin Luther says next. This prophet cannot then teach law, for Moses has done that to the uttermost. And for the law's sake, there be no need to raise up another prophet. Therefore, this word was certainly spoken concerning the teach teaching of grace concerning Christ. So let's understand Luther's logic here. Understand his point. Now from his preface, that's his preface to the Old Testament. Now his preface to the New Testament, from there, he says, see to it, you do not make Christ a second Moses or the gospel a book of laws and doctrines as has been done heretofore. Okay? So he said, look, Moses was the law man. So when Jesus comes, whatever you do, don't impose any laws, because that was Moses. That was the old way. The gospel does not really demand works of ours by which we become righteous and are saved. No, it condemns such works. But it does demand faith in Christ that he's overcome for us sin, death, and hell, thus makes us righteous, gives us life and salvation, not through our works, but through his works, death and suffering, in order we may avail ourselves of his death and victory as though it were our own. Okay? So talking about Jesus, says, we see then also, he does not compel us, just talking about Jesus, but he invites us kindly and says, blessed are the poor, etc. And the apostle used words like, I exhort, I entreat, I beg. 
Thus one sees on every hand the gospel is not a book of law, but really a preaching of the benefits of Christ, shown to us and given to us for our own if we believe. But Moses in his books drives, compels, threatens, smites, and rebukes terribly, for he is a lawgiver and driver. So you see the contrast that he's making between Moses and Jesus here. Okay? Hence it comes to a believer. No law is given by which he becomes righteous before God. So this is what Christ meant when he gave at last no other commandment than love by which men, men were to know who were his disciples and true believers. For where works and love do not break forth, their faith is not right, the gospel does not take hold, Christ is not rightly known. See then that you approach the books of the New Testament so as to learn and read them this way. So, what, did, I, did I misunderstand? He says, he gave no other commandment than love. Okay? Wow. <laughs> that's, quite a, that's quite a bold statement there. So, let's, before we tear Luther apart, let's first try to restate his argument and its essence. All right, let's understand, because this is the foundation of Protestantism. So he's saying Moses brought laws and warnings. He brought about, he brought the ultimate in law. I mean, he brought the, the as far as you could take law, Moses brought it. So if Moses' law isn't going to work, no law is going to work. Okay, since law will not save us and cannot save us, Christ abolished old, the old, old laws, and he didn't bring any new laws to replace them other than, than, than loving uh, one another. And he replaced them with grace and entreaty. His only command is to love one another. This is the argument of Luther. Christ did not bring a new set of laws. Uh, and then the and then the other thing, which I'm not sure how this fits in with the rest of us. So he says, while all the Levitical laws and other laws brought by Moses were abolished, for some reason the Ten Commandments are special and they're still in effect. Okay. However, uh, and, and this is hard for me to understand Luther's logic at this point. I'm struggling to understand it. He's, they're not laws which we must follow in order to be saved, but they're still basic basic principles. They still exist. They're still the way we should live. Now that I, now, since I'm restating Luther's own words and ideas, and I think I'm doing it fairly, I'm trying to anyway, let me follow up, as the, the speaker we listened to last night suggested, by pointing at, raising some questions and pointing out some possible inconsistencies here in what he's saying. So, one question is, on what basis did you conclude that the Ten Commandments are still in effect of all, the, of all the teachings of Moses? Why are they still in effect when everything else is not? You make a distinction between the ceremonial and religious requirements versus the moral requirements, but the, a Sabbath observant is a religious requirement, saying you're going to set one day aside. Uh, you state that Martin Luther, you state that Jesus' only law is to love one another. What about everything else he taught, especially in the Sermon on the Mount? Were they just suggestions? Another question. 
You state that Jesus just entreated while Moses warned the people. What about all the warnings that Jesus gave regarding hellfire and judgment? What about the sheep and the goats? What about better to have a millstone around your neck and hurl them in the depths of the sea? Better to have your hand cut off and your eyes put out than to be thrown into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That seems to me more than an encouragement or an invitation or an entreaty. Okay, what about those things? Can you please give me an explanation there? I missed something. The other thing I think about is in Acts 15. In Acts 15 starts off and there are some Jewish Christians who who are coming and saying, you know, if you want to become a Christian and you're a Gentile, you need to follow the law of Moses and circumcision to become a Christian. And the apostles get together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and they send a letter out. And the letter doesn't say follow the Ten Commandments. It doesn't say uh, observe the Sabbath. It says four things. It says as far as the Jewish rules are concerned, you just have to do these four things. Otherwise, you just follow the teachings of Jesus. You don't have to become Jewish. Okay? So, did they not know what they were doing? Why didn't they just say, if, if, if we're supposed to still follow the Ten Commandments, why didn't they say so? Questions from Martin Luther after respectfully restating his his beliefs. So he can't answer those questions. But uh, I I ran into someone. So Martin Luther is writing in in, uh, around fifteen twenty or so, and uh, this is five hundred years ago, and that seems like that's a long time ago. But I I ran into someone who was writing twelve hundred years before that, who gave a much better answer. And this is Eusebius, it's proof of the gospel, it's an apologetic word, so he's trying to convince people to become Christians. And he's using the Old Testament to prove a lot of his points. And the first objection that he, he, he answers is, you know, he, he's, he's imagined the objections that his, his listeners are going to throw out at him. And he says the first objection that he's answering is, if you Christians have so much respect for Moses and the prophets, why aren't you living like the Jews? Why aren't you following the law of Moses? Why aren't you being circumcised? If you think those prophets and Moses are so great, why aren't you living the way those people are? Uh, And so Eusebius, in answering that objection, gave a wonderful explanation of the law of Moses and how all these things fit together. Uh, He starts off, he says, you know, God's plan was always to bless all the nations of the world, not just the Jews. After all, that's what he said to Abraham. Through your seed, all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed in Genesis 18 and Genesis 22. Then he makes a point, he says, you know, the law of Moses, we're just starting in with the law of Moses right now in the Ten Commandments. He said the law of Moses... It's impossible that all the nations of the earth could follow the law of Moses. He said there's no way they could do that. For one, he threw out a few examples. He says, all the men are supposed and all the men are supposed to gather in one place three times a year. He says, that can't happen. People from all over the world, all the men are gonna leave and go to one place at the same time. He said, that can't happen. That's not that's not gonna work for everybody. 
all the sacrifices at the temple, at the tabernacle in the temple at one place, including when, when a child was born, things like that. That couldn't happen. Uh, and anything associated with a temple sacrifice, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So there goes obeying the law of Moses. It, became, it becomes impossible to do that. So the point he's making is the law of Moses was never was never adequate to be filed by all the nations of the earth. Then the, the next point that he makes is, and the, the irony to me is he's making the same point, he's pivoting off the same exact scripture in all the Old Testament that Luther was, but he makes a totally different point. Listen to his point. He says, Moses indicated that there would be another prophet like him that God would raise up, one that people must follow. This is the prophecy. So this is from Proof of the Gospel from Eusebius in, uh, in, in Book 1, Proof of the Gospel. So I want you to hear in his own words how he makes his case. He says, Moses was the first of the prophets to tell the good news that another prophet like himself would arise. Uh, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 18. Uh, a prophet I'll raise up to them from their brethren like you. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them according to what I command him. Whatsoever... Shall not, and whosoever shall not hear the prophet's words, what he speaks in my name, I will take vengeance upon him. He says, uh, and he, he goes on to there. And he, so he quotes from the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 and 19, that, that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. They have to listen to him. And then he challenges his listeners. He says, was then any of the prophets after Moses... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, any of the twelve, like Moses in being a lawgiver. Not one. Did any of them behave like Moses? One cannot affirm it. For each of them from the first to the last referred their hearers to Moses and based their rebukes of the people on breaching Mosaic law and did nothing but exhort them to hold fast the Mosaic enactments. You could not say any of them was like him. And yet Moses speaks definitively of one who would be like him. Whom then does the oracle prophesy will be a prophet like unto Moses, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and none other? So the point that Eusebius goes on to make, he says, if he was going to become be a prophet like Moses, the thing that made Moses different from every other prophet who came after was he brought the law. Another prophet to be like Moses would be bringing a new law, that the people had to listen to what he had to say. That's the point that he's making. He says that Jesus is like Moses only in, in, in that regard above all others, that he brought in a new law. And that's exactly what Moses said was going to happen, a prophet like him. He also points to a prophecy in Psalm 9, which I never heard anyone point to this before, partly because he's reading the Septuagint, you know, it's based on the Septuagint. In Psalm 9, verses 20 and 21, uh, he, Eusebius points to this, he says, Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Set a lawgiver over them, O Lord, and let the nations know they are men. So he's, Eusebius says, look, this is right here in Psalm 9 and Septuagint, that the Lord will send a lawgiver to the nations. 
And this is the, the, the verb form, the same word for lawgiver there is used in Exodus 24, verse 12, pertaining to Moses and the, and the Septuagint. And of course, in Jeremiah 31, or in the Septuagint verse, uh, I'm sorry, Jeremiah chapter 31, Septuagint chapter 38, uh, there's the famous statement that's repeated in Hebrews chapter uh, uh, ch- chapter 10, where it's, the Lord says, The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with the fathers the day I told, took hold of their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. I will surely put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. So he's saying... There will be a new covenant, and there will be new laws from God that will be issued along with the new covenant. He doesn't say, I'm going to revoke the covenant and there won't be any more laws. He says, no, there will be a new covenant with new laws, not like the covenant. And he's obviously he's referring to the one that was given to Moses. Uh He doesn't say, I'm going to do away with the old laws and just let them live by grace. He says, I'll put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts. Uh, Dave Berceau often points out that uh, the message of the gospel is the kingdom of God. And like any, it's a real kingdom. And like any real kingdom, it has a real king. It has real citizen subjects. And it has real laws, like every kingdom. Uh, Eusebius also did not say, Martin Luther said, well, I mean, the, the, the law of Moses, that's the ultimate in law. I mean, you just can't do any more than that. If law could save us, that would have done it. That's not the attitude that Eusebius had. He says that the law of Moses was inadequate for two reasons. He says, first of all, as I mentioned before, it couldn't be observed by all nations. There were things in it that, that wouldn't work for the whole world. And the second was, it was only one step in the right direction. That's all it was. He, 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 he says, look, the law of Moses was given right after the people had spent 400 years in Egypt. They were polluted. They were contaminated by living in a world that was tainted by polytheism and the worship of other gods and idolatry. And Eusebius made it, and I've never heard anybody make this case before, but think about it. Eusebius made the case that actually there was a more, his argument doesn't hang on this, but I think it's, it's worth considering. He says, he made the case there was a more ancient and perfect law than the law of Moses that some of the earlier Christ, the earlier men of faith lived by. Now think, that, that may sound, sound outrageous, but think about in uh, uh, Job 31, when Job is defending his life before God, consider some of the things that he's saying. Consider the standard that he's living by. He says he wouldn't cast his eyes lustfully toward a woman. He fed the poor, clothed the naked, took care of widows and orphans. He said he trusted God not in his wealth. And he didn't even rejoice at the fall of his enemies. Oh, this blows away the law of Moses. This is, he's basically living by the standard of the New Testament before the law of Moses. How did he do that? Enoch was a man who walked with God and was taken up. I mean, 
What were these people doing? The point that Eusebius makes is, in more ancient times, that there were people who were living by a higher standard, and that Jesus was bringing in a new standard, but it was also the more ancient standard. This was originally what God's intent was. Okay? Think about Jesus' teachings on, I think about Jesus' teachings on, on divorce and remarriage. Okay? And, and polygamy. Jesus goes back to the beginning. He says the new law for marriage is going to be the original law. He takes it all the way back to Genesis, Genesis 2. The higher law in the beginning. The Moses allowed this because your hearts were hard. So perhaps Jesus, Eusebius is right, and Jesus returned to a more ancient and perfect standard. Uh, than, than, than it was originally there. And the law of Moses was just an intermediate step. Eusebius' view is that there, there, are three, there are three different levels here. Okay, The lowest level, okay? lowest level is the pagan lawless way of life. The first step in the right direction is the law of Moses. It's an imperfect step which was given... In the, in the aftermath of coming out of Egyptian idolatry and paganism. And I mean, to me, this is, is similar in, in some ways to what Paul says in Galatians 3, verses uh, 24, 25, where he talked about the, the, the law is a tutor to bring you partway along. Okay, it, it's like the first step up the stairway. It's a tutor that brings you partway along, but then when you graduate, you move on beyond that to adulthood. You no longer need that. You don't need the training wheels on the bicycle anymore. Okay? So level one would be the pagan lawlessness. Level two is the law of Moses, an imperfect law. And then level three is the perfect law of the gospel revealed by Jesus, which perhaps was known in earlier times by men like Job. Somehow, some way, I don't know how. So in that light, let's consider what Jesus said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, he said, Do not think I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, what's he talking about? He's fulfilling the law. Moses said... That in the future, God would send a prophet like him and the people must listen to him. That's part of the law of Moses. That was given to him on the same day the Ten Commandments were given. And Jesus says he didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. Because that was the missing piece that Moses said would be there. That's part of the law. He was uniquely like Moses, and then he brought in new laws, unlike all the other prophets who came between, between him and Moses. And when you look at Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he frames his teaching as superseding Moses. That's the way he, that's the way he structures the Sermon on the Mount. Think about Matthew 5.21. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. That's from the Ten Commandments. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. Whoever says to his brother rock will be in danger of the council. 
The same thing a little further on. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. That's the Ten Commandments. That's Moses. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is putting his sayings on the same level as the command of Moses and even saying, I'm superseding, I'm going beyond the law of Moses. Jesus is not replacing one law with a set of suggestions or a bunch of ideals that it would be nice to live by if you've got nothing else to do, okay? He's replacing one law with a better and more perfect one, calling his followers to live by the new and higher standard. He is superseding what Moses taught, and only one person would have the authority to do that, and that is the prophet that Moses said would come 1,400 years earlier. He was the one God raised up who would be just like Moses, the lawgiver. Luther was wrong in saying the lesson from Moses is that all laws are useless. Jesus did indeed replace one set of laws with a more perfect one, a set of laws that is appropriate for all people all over the earth that anyone can follow. We we can eat all kinds of food, not just the kosher dietary requirements. As he told the woman in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, where in the past you had to go to Jerusalem to worship, but in the future he said all will be able to worship God everywhere in spirit and in truth. It's opening it up to the universal religion that was originally intended. Um, And then Jesus says in Matthew 5, 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus here is not talking about his own personal righteousness. Everything that follows, including the close in Matthew chapter 7, relates to how we live our lives, living by a higher standard than the one that Moses laid out following the new laws of the kingdom, which are also perhaps very old and ancient laws. And he expects us to obey these teachings and realize that it's a narrow and difficult way of life, but certainly not impossible. Anyone can do it. So, conclusions regarding the Ten Commandments. They were part of an imperfect law. It was the first step. It was the tutor. Part of the tutor that takes us part of the way it's been replaced by a higher law. Just as Moses said would happen, God said to Moses would happen on the day the Ten Commandments were given. And I want to to shift focus here and go back and take a look at the Sabbath, because that's the one that stood out that, well, are we still still supposed to follow that or not? Um, Let's reread Exodus chapter 20. Starting in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, neither you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor your stranger who sojourns with you. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Or hallowed it, you know, made it holy. Uh, so he says... Uh, 
the Sabbath-related requirement and the, the, ten, the Ten Commandments, generally called the Fourth Commandment, no servile work on the seventh day. Um, and he ties it back to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. God created the world, completed it in six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. The specifics related to the Sabbath observant, observance don't do any work. Now, work isn't precisely defined here, so the Jews would argue back and forth about, you know, what, what how far can you walk, what constitutes work, um, uh, argue about this. Uh, and, but, but not only you don't do any work, your children don't do any work, your servants don't do any work, and even your donkey doesn't do any work. Your donkey gets the day off, okay? So, uh, <clears throat> and this was a holy day, means it's set apart for God. So he doesn't tell you specifically what to do here. He doesn't say you have to sit around and read the Bible all day long and meditate or pray, but it's, it's a day that's set apart for God. So that certainly would fit in with that, that you're not working, and this is this is a holy day set apart for the Lord. Uh, the Sabbath is not, was not, never was, and never will be the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. There are two, two, two totally different things. Um, Jesus was crucified on Friday afternoon, and the reason that they went and broke the legs of the, of the, the, the two thieves that were with him, and they wanted to, to hasten his death and demise, was because the sun was going down, they didn't want the bodies up there on the Sabbath. And notice here, Jesus finished his work, like the Father, on the sixth day, and then he rested all day on the Sabbath. He did that too. It was, a, I think, it's in some ways a foreshadowing of the crucifixion and the uh, uh, the, the time in the tomb. So, uh, and it says that the Lord rose on the first day of the week. The, the two women who go to the tomb, they want to prepare the body, but they rest on the Sabbath. It says in. Uh, Luke 23, they're resting because they're good Jewish women and they don't do any work on the Sabbath and then they come back on uh, uh, sunrise on, on Sunday to, uh, to attend to the body. And, um, and then it says that the Lord rose on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, obviously. From the beginning, the Christians celebrated the Lord's Day at the first day of the week talks about they got together the first day of the week to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. Revelation 1.10 talks about he was in the Lord, on, on the Lord's day. The early Christians understood Lord's day as the first day of the week because it's associated with the day that the Lord rose. Um, as Paul is traveling, you know, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and it talks about Paul as he's going from place to place. He goes to Pisidian Antioch. He goes to another city. Acts chapter 13 he goes and reasons with the Jews on the Sabbath. So the Jews are gathered together on Saturday, and he's doing that. Then he reasons with them on the next Sabbath. So the Sabbath in the New Testament, after Jesus rose from the dead, is still Saturday. The Jews are still gathering together. Let's read in Colossians chapter 2. What happened to the Sabbath? To me, this is the definitive uh, scripture on this. Mm -hmm. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. 
For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also are raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, do not let so let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Christ, is of Christ. So he says, uh, uh, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and having taken it out of the way, nailed it at the cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, the law of Moses was nailed to the cross. And it doesn't say the Ten Commandments Slip through the cracks on that one. Okay, that's part of the law of Moses. It says that the, the, the handwriting requirements that was against us, this is the Ten Commandments written by the hand of God, taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. Um, and so he says, therefore, because of this, because that was done away with, let no one judge you in food or drink regarding a festival, a new moon, or Sabbath. So, the, the, Sabbath, the Sabbath has been nailed to the cross as well. It's part of the law of Moses. And that's the fourth commandment. So, so uh, I think it's, it's, it's quite clear. Now, so what's the, what's the point of the Sabbath? So, what was it for? It just disappeared? It's gone? It's just a reminder of God rested on the seventh day of creation? Well, it says... These things were a shadow, but the reality has come. So many of these things in the Old Testament were foreshadowing realities. When Paul says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, he says, look, is God really that concerned about hungry oxen? He says, no, the principle, the principle here, that's now been revealed that the... the the, the elders who are being supported by the church, that they should be, uh, they should be supported, they should, they should have food to eat too while they're doing their work. So it's basically, he's saying that this is, that that statement in the law of Moses has now been fulfilled and realized. Some of the early Christians, they talk about the requirements for uh, what you eat. Okay, you don't eat pigs, you don't eat snakes, you don't eat shellfish. Um, you eat the animals that chew the cud and that have the split hooves. And they talked about how the reason that God did this was because pigs are unclean animals. Pigs live in mud and they eat garbage. Okay, 
Sorry for people who like pork, but that's that's the for pigs. That's what they do. They live in. They like the mud. Piglets wash goes back to diving in the mud. Pigs like mud and they eat anything. They're undiscriminating. Whereas sheep and cows will eat grass and that's about it. They just eat grass. They don't. They're not interested in the garbage, uh, the leftovers, things like that. They want pure grass. So it says no. These are the clean animals. You need to be like them. Is that the, you chew it? You eat the pure food, and then you're and then you're meditating on it. You're working it over. You're working it over. So it's saying there's a shadow in the dietary laws, which is which is now fulfilled for us. Uh, the Passover lamb being sacrificed. That's a shadow of Christ. It's a shadow of the a foreshadowing of the Last Supper. Here he's making an allusion here to circumcision is foreshadowed by conversion. It's putting away the flesh and being born again. And he, he likens it to baptism. Well, what about the Sabbath? What's that foreshadowing? Uh, well, it talks about that in Hebrews chapter 4. And it says, uh, let's turn there. Significance of the Sabbath. It was, it was foreshadowing something that is important for us. Hebrews chapter 4, and this is talking about the story about the the time in the wilderness and the passage from the Psalms that says, uh, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like you did in the rebellion in the wilderness. And then it concludes, it says, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let's not let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as them, but the word they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore there remains that some must enter it, those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again he designates a certain day, saying in David today, after such a long time as it's been said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For Joshua had, if, if Joshua had given them rest, then he would have afterwards spoken of another day. He wouldn't, I'm sorry. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall in according according to the same example of disobedience. So this is the, the principle he's saying here is that the, the time of traveling through the wilderness, the people didn't enter the promised land. They didn't enter the rest of God at the end because of faithfulness as they were traveling. And he's saying the same promise applies to us. 
that the whole idea of the rest at the end, of God's rest being provided at the end, is a foreshadowing of eternal life, the rest that we look forward to in the end. So, is this the time to be resting? No. Okay. The answer is no. All right, it's good to get sleep at night, but we're not here to rest. This The whole story of the Sabbath is that the rest comes at the end. It's the, he, just does, he doesn't say pick one random day of the week and just don't work. He says, no, the last day of the week, the last day is when God rested. And that's when you're going to rest, at the end of the week. So that's not now. This is not the time to rest. We need to be workers. Jesus said, ask the Lord of the harvest for workers to go into his harvest field. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. We are here to work. And we'll get plenty and get, get to sleep every night. We get plenty of opportunity to rest at the end. But the, but the goal is to enter God's rest at the end. That's the lesson of the Sabbath. If we work now and we're faithful to God, we will enjoy the rest that God provides. So, I realize some people, it's just kind of burned into your spiritual consciousness or whatever that, you know, Sunday is the Lord's Day and you just can't work, you can't do anything. And and I, I felt, I remember I, I sometimes I have to go into work on, on a Sunday and I, I, I'm just like, something's like bothering my conscience. Is this okay or not? Or, you know, sometimes if I'm working on the house or maybe I have to get up on a ladder or something, I think, boy, if I fell down right now, that'd be God's curse on me for working on a Sunday. Okay. And uh, I'm thinking, not only would it be God's curse, but all my Christian friends would say, aha, that's why he was working on the Sabbath and God struck him dead, you know, <laughs> struck him down or crippled him or did something like that. So, um, and, and if someone decides that they want to set aside Sunday and not work and use it to read the Bible, to meditate and just unplug from all the stuff you're normally doing, I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a great thing. Um, the, uh, in Romans 14, it says one person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. So we shouldn't be throwing stones at people who are either doing it or not doing it, regardless of what we're doing. Because the Sabbath was to teach us a lesson. It was a foreshadowing. The, the law has been, the law and the, the, don't let anybody judge us on the basis of a Sabbath observance. But uh, uh, the, the, the early Christian's attitude was if somebody wants to observe the Sabbath and not work on that day. Let's say they're from a Jewish background. That's fine. But don't bind that on the Gentiles. So uh, so you're free to observe the Lord's Day and to, and to, and to rest on that day and to de- devote resting in the sense of devoting your life to meditating on God and on, on spiritual things, not just to, to being lazy. That's not what it's all about. And uh, may God bless you. Uh, We are free from the law of Moses. We are free from the Ten Commandments. We are called to a much, much higher and perfect standard. Amen.